we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. In this episode, Foundry Fellow Lama Muhammad sits down with Katie Harbath, Chief Executive Officer of Anchor Change, to discuss election integrity with a special focus on how it's impacted by public trust and the rise of misinformation. At Anchor Change, Katie helps clients think through tech policy issues. She's also a senior advisor at the Air National Republican Institute and a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, the Integrity Institute, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for joining this week's episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, This is a topic that I can talk about for hours and hours and hours, though we will only do it for a little bit. So thank you. We're just going to get right into the crux of everything and just set the stage by discussing sort of the history of misinformation and disinformation. What's the difference between the two and how do they both manifest themselves on social media platforms or digital platforms? Mis and disinformation gets lumped together a lot. And we really do need to be precise. Disinformation means the person that is sharing it, putting it out there, knows it's fake. That is their intention. They are trying to spread disinformation. Misinformation is when the user is sharing it, but doesn't necessarily know it's misinfo. You'll have you know a lot of actors. We saw this in 2016 mm. with the Russian Re- Internet Research Agency and others is you will have people whose intent it is to get this stuff spread. And then they're hoping that people will spread it to their friends, even though they may not know that it's fake. A lot of the content that we see online, offline, just in the general information ecosystem, there's usually nuggets of truth in it. So it's not completely false. There's truths in it. There's falsehoods. And so that was that's oftentimes been described as malinformation. Why does this issue have such a large impact on society? Why is it? Why has it become so massive? First, mis and disinformation have existed well before the internet. Hmm. They're going to exist well after the internet. What is newer and has happened over particularly the last 10 years or so is how quick that can be spread, how fast that can be shared with a lot of people. Um, the global connectivity nature of it, of it all, the reduction of costs of, of getting that, that information out because of not just the social media platforms, but just the internet and web in general. And, and also like the, again, overall information ecosystem. So you also still have radio, you still have TV, cable, um, all of these places are vectors for, for this type of, this type of information. Now, so that's a challenge in which to, to reduce the spread of it, and be thinking about it. But I also don't want us to be thinking about that something's only harmful if a lot of people saw it. Mm. Um, you can have small numbers of people see something and there can still be a lot of harm. In fact, most people don't see a lot of harmful content on when they go on social media, but studies have shown sometimes it's small percentages of people that have like a high amount of hate speech and other things that might be appearing in that. So 
so you have that that sort of issue. You also kind of have a, def, a definitional issue. How do you define it? How do you, you know, these things again, like we we're talking about with definitions, doesn't necessarily look clear. And so I think right now, and also a lot of this stuff now is out in the open. It's not like it's hiding under in the shadows, right? It's our elected officials, it's prominent figures. Like this stuff is, it's right in front of us, which in some ways I think makes fighting it a lot harder. Especially given the in this in the United States, you know, with the First Amendment, our protection of political speech makes it really, really hard. We're not used to trying to deal with that, and so I think we're in the middle of redefining our societal norms of how we hold people accountable for the things that they say. How much should those things be amplified rather than just to leave it up, take it down, right, type right. of type of thing? It has eroded trust mm. overall that people have in institutions, in what they're hearing on the news, what they're reading, wherever they might be. There's a bit of a liar's dividend that is happening. Now people just don't know necessarily if what they see is is true or not. You kind of need to go to multiple different sources. You need to be, it's just a lot more work right. um, to be thinking about that. And a lot of times it helps to reinforce people's preconceived notions that they might have. So, you know, in the worst case scenario, these things lead to, to violence. And we've seen that here in the States, elsewhere around the world um, of what that can happen, but it can also lead towards, I think, and one of the things I'm really worried about as we go into 2024 is apathy. We're seeing that people are just turning off the news. They're burnt out. Um, they're burnt out from it. And I'm also worried that given how much people at the moment, assuming it's Trump and Biden, again, they're just not excited by the candidates. Um, they're not excited by this. And so I'm worried that we're going to go into an election year where people are just going to tune out. Do you mind talking about some myth busting and answer the question that's on everyone's minds? Are U.S. elections at risk due to the spread of misinformation and disinformation campaigns? So it is still, it is still something to be concerned about. But there's a phrase that I've been using a lot. In fact, I've even made stickers. I know people oh, can't yay. see them, but it says panic. It says panic responsibly. Mm. I even bought the URL panicresponsibly.com. So there's a swag <laughs> store coming your way soon. Oh, fun. Um, but, but I think that the, the reason I say that is, is that particularly when you throw in then everything that's happening around AI mm. and artificial intelligence and generative artificial intelligence, people are very concerned about you know, we're already seeing deep fakes, AI used in commercials, mm. AI used in audio. In some ways, people are very nervous, rightfully so, about how this is going to affect the information environment, what people, again, further eroding trust in what that looks like. Um, and that can go, turn, you know, from an election standpoint, just the process of elections, election officials have been under attack since 2020 election. Um, you know, it's a complicated process we have in the states. Every state is different. Sometimes every precinct and county is different in how they count ballots. Their rules are on absentee, mail-in, et cetera. And so that can make it really challenging for folks, again, to sort of know, like, is there fishy stuff going on? Is there not fishy stuff going right. on? And that makes it easier for some of that mis- and disinformation to, to spread, again, ultimately reducing the trust of what's happening. Now, on the flip side of that, is that after 2016, there has been a lot of work that has gone into between the platforms, government agencies like CISA, academics, and others to try to coordinate better, to try to pre-bunk 
a lot to monitor what's happening, let people know the types of narratives that they're seeing and try to get counter messaging out there. Um, and that has been something that's been really important. Um, I think of trying to help people to sort of inoculate themselves, um, and understand and just better understand that, okay, I might hear this and I may need to like check on to make sure it's true or not. We saw that kind of work when Russia invaded Ukraine, that pre-bunking, we saw that a bit with the midterms. That work is under attack right now by by House Republicans in particular. There's lawsuits, there's Supreme Court mm. cases, all that that's happening. But um, I but that work is still happening. People are still hoping to to do that and everything. And so, I while I, I'm concerned about it, and I think it will still affect elections, we are seeing a lot of people working to combat it. It is not something that I think we should just throw our hands up and be like, we can't do anything. Are you worried about generative AI amplifying misinformation as we look to the next U.S. presidential election? Well, and I think for your listeners, it's first important to kind of define what we mean when we're saying hmm. generative AI. And also there's other types of AI. AI has been around for a while. Right. Platforms have been working on it for a while. It's been it's been a part of our lives, even though we didn't necessarily realize that. Last year is when it really got a lot more user-friendly, a lot more commercialized with the when OpenAI released um, its version of ChatGPT mm-hmm. last November. And then since then, we've obviously seen, just seen an explosion of tools um, that people are using on the, on the AI fronts. And generative AI is that when you like like I like to use ChatGPT for letters of recommendation. So it's like, please write me a letter of recommendation about Llama. We work together at this organization and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then it writes the letter for me. It's fantastic. It's great. Um, and um, and so it's when it kind of generates that content, it images too. And so that is, that's the part that why people I think are, are, turbocharged in their concerns because it can be easier for people to go create. I have an AI version of me that I use to read my newsletter, like, but that can be used to, to mimic, uh, you know, elected official, a candidate, anybody of, of a trust. And I'm actually most worried about audio deepfakes than I am video ones because there's less contextual clues for you to use in, in audio. Um, and so, uh, I, it's all going to be, it's, it's all something for us to watch out for um, and see how it is or is not used. I think the biggest challenge for us, though, is we just don't know exactly how it's going to appear, how it's exactly going to be used, how these tools are going to continue to evolve over the next year. And that, that, that unknowing feeling is something that most people feel very uncomfortable about, gives people a lot of anxiety. And that's, again, kind of why I go back to the like panic responsibly type thing of not of like really trying to separate out the signal from the noise as we go throughout the next year, being diligent about doing these things responsibly, trying to combat them, um, all of that, all of that good jazz, because we can't stop it from from happening. Um, we just need to be prepared for it and, and be prepared for the things we don't know and how it's going to show up and how do we make sure we got the frameworks in place to try to deal with it quickly. I actually recently read a piece in Bloomberg featuring the University of California Berkeley's professor Hani Farid and Ruman Chaudhry, a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, both very prominent AI experts in this field. And they were sort of discussing how generative AI isn't actually disinformation's biggest problem, but it's everyday users who are spreading information and those who claim information is fake because it doesn't sort of conform to their 
sort of preconceived notion of what information should be. Um, so would you agree with the sentiment? And what are your thoughts on this? I 100% agree with it. There is, um, there's a great organization in the UK called Who Targets Me. They have a Substack new- newsletter called Full Disclosure that wrote on this recently as well. I think that they are 100% right. It is not, again, these are not new problems. <laughs> but what AI is doing is pouring more gasoline on the fire. So you still have, it is by just handling and thinking about AI, you are only addressing one symptom. You're not getting to the root of the problem uh, around all of this and, and thinking about it. And, um, and you know, it's, it's way too, if these were easy solutions and if the solution was just, well, just label it. People, you know, just tell them it's fake. Tell them, you know, this, the human the human mind and the human psyche and our communities and how we feel belonging and all of those different types of things are way more complicated. And the polarized society that we find ourselves in today, it started well before the internet. But again, the internet was an accelerant and all of these different tools continue to be more and more accelerants, which make it even harder and harder to try to like keep up, get our heads wrapped around it, um, of doing that. And so we do need to be careful that we don't just keep moving from shiny thing to shiny thing. Um, try to find some simple solution, pat ourselves on the back and be like, we've solved it. It's great. Um, this is a problem that's never going to be solved. We are never going to all get together and have a mission accomplished banner and, and say we've, we've solved all the problems. Um, it's, we have to, we have to realize that this is always a cat and mouse game, um, of trying to, of trying to figure this out. And I really think that we as a society right now are rewriting our societal norms of how we want to hold people accountable for what they say, how we consume news, how we consume this, how we build community. Um, and those are really hard things and they're going to take a while for us to do it. I'm just glad we're having the conversations yeah, um, about that be- because that is what we're going to need. And we're going to need thoughtful disagreement because these are things that reasonable people can come to different conclusions on. And then we got to put it out there in the world, see how people react and then pivot and make changes as that is happening. Um, And so I think we need to kind of understand this is a bit of our new normal. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting how you touch on, you know, people sort of reconsidering their societal values. Because I'm even thinking about the concept of comedy and, and, you know, political standup, like, People are now not actually okay with comedians stretching their stories a little bit to tell a joke. And I think that sensitivity of the truth is really becoming something that is a societal value. Uh, But sort of a follow-up is I'm really interested in sort of the denial that people are having where if they see something that doesn't conform to their belief, then it's automatically not true. And it reminds me a lot about this concept of groupthink. what are some of the dangers of groupthink as it relates to elections or democracy generally? Most people really, they feel most comfortable when they are within groups of people who think like them, where they feel, where they feel safe, they feel like they belong, they don't feel like they're, they're not rocking the boat. Um, we see this where people choose to live, right? Like this is part of the polarization is people oftentimes very much move to places where there are people who who look and sound and, and believe and believe like them. And people do, aren't necessarily given the tools when they're growing up 
you know, in other places, college, wherever they might be, about how to have those sort of difficult conversations with folks when you may not when you may not agree with them. Listen, the world is just so chaotic right now, right? So many things are being upended. So many things have been changing. They're changing so rapidly. It gives people a lot of it gives people a lot of anxiety around this and because they don't again the trust in institutions what they're hearing etc continues to decline um i don't think it's automatic that just somebody sees something and it conforms to what they believe and they just immediately are like yes that's without but i think it's more about like how we put how do we help people get in the right mindset my mom last year i think it was um said something to me. She's like, it was something like, can you believe that they, I think it was Minnie Mouse wearing a pantsuit. Now my mom loves Disney. She loves Minnie Mouse. Her dog is named Minnie. So like this was, I love it. And, and she thought she goes, Katie, I, I just, I don't like this. What about Minnie's dress? Like, I can't believe they're changing this. Like, and I'm like, it was March. And I'm like, mom, are you sure that it wasn't for international women's day? I think this is just a temporary thing. And I quick do a Google search. Sure enough, it was just for International Women's Day. And I go, mom, Minnie's, Minnie's dress is fine. She'll, she <laughs> she has choices, just like we all do. Right. It's fine. And I was like, where did you hear that from? And she's like, oh, so-and-so in the pickleball court told me about it. And she just automatically believed it. And I had to tell her, I'm like, mom, when you, that kind of stuff happens and it gets your hair up on the, your neck, kind of like you get all, you know, you get kind of like, you get up, you know, Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, maybe search it, maybe go look and see like right. what the, what the full story is before you do that. But I say all of that in terms of like going back to your kind of tribal and group think mm. and all of that is that our challenges is how do we approach people so that they don't feel like they're being attacked. So they don't feel like their values are being right. questioned and that you can have a place where you can actually, they're in a pl place where they can hear you when it comes to that um, and thinking about that. And I think we do need to do more of trying to think about how we blend these groups and communities together. And I think it actually happens a lot more than what we may realize, mm. particularly if you go into smaller towns and smaller communities you talk to a lot of people and they're just like, I don't know if they're Republican or Democrat. I don't, you know, they're more, they're, they're brought together because their kids are in the same school or, or things of that nature. And so I would actually like to encourage more of that mm -hmm. and almost trying to get some more of this discussion, particularly around politics and stuff. I know I'm asking for a pipe dream here, but like <laughs> more to the local level right? than necessarily always thinking about things at the national level, because that does tend to be a lot more polarizing than necessarily what's happening in your community. Do you think some of the mistrust we're discussing today also stems from a lack of trust in our elected officials, but also traditional news media? First and foremost, we do see that people's trust in traditional news media is way down. Mm. I think we're also seeing a, a big shift in how people are getting their news and who they're trusting. I find a couple of stats interesting. One is that 85% of people, according to Pew, trust what they hear on a podcast mm. like this one. <laughs> you and I are not journalists. We're, you know, right. We're not sure. I mean, I'm a journalism major, but like I'm an anal analyst. I'm a former tech executive. I'm an, I'm an right. expert, but like 
I have a point of view, like I'm not coming at this interview with my journalism major hat on, right? As part of all of that. And so, and there's gonna be people who disagree with me on on some of these things, right? And so my perspective should be but one that people are taking into account. But the other thing that's interesting is so there's been a lot of polls that show that Gen Zers in particular are going to places like TikTok and Instagram right. when breaking news happens. But then there was recently another story where somebody was like, oh, all this talk about news on TikTok. No, it's not being amplified. TikTok's not amplifying it. You know, Meta and Threads are talking about how they're trying to deprioritize politics and news. Mm. Well, if you look at the TikTok study, they were only looking at traditional media. Mm. They were not looking at news influencers, people Mm. who aren't necessarily journalists, but they're using traditional media footage coverage, reporting, and then they're adding their own spin on top of it. And so we, I think we need to kind of rethink and be watching about who it is that people are actually listening to when it comes to this. I kind of want to shift gears to the international community. Um, You know, next year is going to be huge elections happening in the EU, India, Pakistan, Australia, Tunisia, and many countries you've had experience, you know, working with. Um, Are digital platforms ready? What are you most concerned about? My favorite topic. I have been beating the drum about the unprecedented year of elections happening globally next year. The tsunami. Um, The tsunami. Well, there's, so there's, depending how you count it, um, because it actually turns out counting elections is kind of a complicated thing, Um, but there's about 65 national level elections across 54 countries next year. It's, it's never happened before that we have this combination of major elections all happening in the same year. So a, Huge geopolitical moment. Huge geopolitical moment for the world. Um, It's going to impact everybody. So it's not just an online thing. The platform on the platform side, we kind of need to look look at this um, in a couple of different ways. One, you have the legacy platforms. So here I'm going to put your Facebooks, well, Metas, Googles, Microsofts. I'm going to keep X and Twitter off in its own category because it's just its own special beast, right? Um, So those platforms have had years to build up. These are the teams that I helped stand up at Meta. Um, They have hundreds of full-time workers. At Facebook, at our peak, we had 500 full-time workers. And then you had um, tens of thousands of community um, monitor or content moderators, excuse me, um, and everything that was working on this. So they have had years to build up these tools, these policies. they they were already going to be stretched thin no matter what. They're even more stretched thin due to the layoffs. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, they will do their best, but prioritization and choices will be made um, mm-hmm. about what is done where. And my big ask to all the platforms is sort of like, just tell us early on mm. where you're thinking of what, where you're going to be doing work, where you're going to be prioritizing what you're going to be doing. So if others need to fill the gaps, they can. Mm. Um, but then you also have your newer platforms. Um, these are the ones that this is going to be their first election cycle that they're really in the spotlight. TikTok is one. You've also got Substack that has Ooh, decided right. that they want 2024 to be the Substack election. You have you have all the podcasting platforms. Mm-hmm. You have uh, the streaming platforms. You have your Discords, your Twitches, mm-hmm. your Nextdoors, your Blue Skies. There's all sorts of these. And then you also have platforms like Rumble, which caters more to right-leaning uh, folks. Mm. You have your true socials and, and everything else. Again, may not have huge numbers, but you don't need huge numbers to have impact. Right. And 
I don't call it a, a, a um, spectrum of where they all kind of land and how they deal with politics and stuff. I really call it a kaleidoscope because mm. I think that better like describes the complex, the complexity in everything of what they're trying to do. But these are folks, they're just building their policies out for the first time. Now mm. they're trying to figure out these, the tools. So there's writing the policy, then there's enforcing on it. Right. Um, and then you also have platforms or organizations like open AI trying to figure out what this looks like for around AI and generative AI mm. and all of that. And so, um, I know all of them are thinking about it. Um, there's some work that is being being done, but they have a long way to go to, in terms to catch up to the to the bigger platforms, and that's going to be a real challenge for a lot of them. Oof. Okay. Well, I'm going to. Yeah, it's anxiety ridden. I know. Is. It's like it's so much anxiety, right? It's like, and the hard part. This is one of the hardest parts about doing this type of work and like this trust and safety work, not just app platforms, but like just in general, is that. It's really hard to know if what you're the choices you're making are going to work. Are they are they going to help? Are they going to hurt? Are there going to be unattended consequences we didn't think about? Are we going to be able to to pivot quickly? And you may not know until years after the election um, about whether or not something truly had the impact that you wanted it to have. So a lot of people are making best guesses based upon what they've seen work in the past or not work in the past um, in going forward. And that just really makes this work so tough because again, people would really love certainty and be like, okay, they're on top of it. When in reality, we just don't know. Right. Right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that sort of transitions me into my next question is that trust and safety has been, I personally think a big buzzword for this year. And, you know, you recently lost launched your organization, Anchor Change. Congratulations. Um, tell us Thank a little you. bit uh, more about it and its goals. I also know um, interested listeners can subscribe to your newsletter to learn more about some of the things that we discussed today as well. Yeah. So I, when I, I left Facebook after 10 years of March of 21. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I knew I wanted to stay working in the technology and democracy space. Mm -hmm. I wanted to work both US and internationally. And there wasn't, that job didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. There wasn't an org. And so I realized that if I wanted to do that, I really wanted to put together a portfolio of projects mm -hmm. that I could do that would help me to do. And I had three pillars that I wanted my work to kind of fall into. One was mentorship. So mm -hmm. I really liked being a manager or I really like going and talking to classes mm -hmm. or talking to people who are wanting to get into this space and trying to just help encourage more and more people to do so. The second pillar that I wanted um, to focus on is voice. So I really enjoyed speaking a lot when I was at Facebook, but I was always doing it on behalf of Facebook. Mm. And so I wanted to continue to build up and have outlets for my own analysis, thought leadership, thinking through a lot of these issues. And so like you mentioned, I launched a Substack also called Anchor Change. So it's at anchorchange.substack.com. Um, I've been running that now for about two two-ish years. Um, and then I started a podcast also this fall called Impossible Trade-Offs that you can find at that same Stubstack link mm -hmm. where I'm really trying to explore some of these tough decisions that platforms and others have to face and trying to give people a little bit, if you're interested in like, how do elections work in Latin America mm -hmm. or India or Indonesia? Um, I'm doing in-depth interviews with folks from those places um, to try to better help people understand how these issues sort of manifest themselves and how those elections and stuff work. 
And then I do traditional consulting. You know, I'm working with some of those online platforms that I mentioned mm-hmm. who are trying to figure out this stuff for the first time. Um, I do work with some nonprofits, um, the Bipartisan Policy Center, mm-hmm. the International Republican Institute, um, and then the Integrity Institute, which is a newer nonprofit that some of my former Facebook colleagues started. Um, it's a membership organization of people in this trust and safety space. Um, and so a lot of, if I were to boil down all of that, I, I do a lot of just explaining the tech world to the political world mm-hmm. and policy world and vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> um, and trying to help them both like understand one another, understand where the two are coming from and trying to bring them a little closer together so that we can be, you know, not just shouting at each other from each other's corners, but actually trying to think about the right solutions as we move forward. Yeah. As a communicator in the space, I appreciate your sentiment. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so before we conclude, I kind of want to sort of summarize this, but what advice do you have for digital users to be mindful of or understand how to detect misinformation to help them think critically about the information that they're consuming? I actually just wrote a couple of these down because I think I'm going to do a newsletter newsletter on it because I'm mm-hmm. getting a lot of questions from people about like what they can do now mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I'm going to start with the individual, but then I want to go into a couple of things for folks that are in this space that might be listening to this that they can also do. One for just all of us, take a look at your media diet, how you want to be verifying information, how do you want to stay on top of what is happening, who the candidates are, stuff like that. Just do a little audit. Just do a little audit. Are you actually consuming the things that you want to be consuming? Are you getting the different perspectives that you want to be getting? How are you thinking about that? We don't oftentimes, it's so automatic, I think, that we oftentimes don't be like, wait a second, I claim I want a variety of different voices, but it turns out I'm just getting the same thing yeah. over and over and over again, right? Yeah. So I think that that is one thing. Another one is to really think before you post or share something. Um, if something is getting you really worked up really quickly, that's probably a sign for you to take a deep breath Mm. (laughs) and to think before, think before you share, um, and, and maybe, um, you know, do some verifying looking at that, but like, you just want to be, you just want to be careful. I'm not saying don't share it. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. You absolutely should, but like taking a deep breath and just making sure that like you're thinking about it is, is important. The final thing I'll say for all of us and then a couple other things. Um, finally, just don't don't disengage. Mm-hmm. Don't think that your vote doesn't matter. Don't think that your voice doesn't matter. I know it feels like it may just be a little drop in the big ocean that we're all swimming in, but it really does matter. And I'm really, really worried that we're going into a year where people, again, are just going to tune out and not show up. And that really worries me. Um, and so I think people should really do that for those that are in this space and in trying to do some of this work, a couple of other things I would just mention is have a crisis comms plan ready. Mm. You are going to be, people might retaliate against you. People are going to push back. All of those things can happen. So have, be thinking about your safety and your security, your own mental health, but also how, who your allies can be in and others so that you can just like, you know it's going to happen. You may not know exactly how it's going to happen, but like have a plan so you're not being reactionary and waiting till it happens. Um, in which to in which to do that. Um, 
And then I would also say like making sure that you're showing your work, like platforms need to do a lot more of showing their decision-making, how they make those decisions. I think journalists need to do the same about how and why they're covering stories mm. or choosing which sources and stuff that they're choosing to, to cover. And all of that I think is really important. And then the last thing I'll just say for everybody is just remember to panic responsibly <laughs> to not, it's not, you know, we, we have worked through technological change and disruption many, many, many times as a human race. We will continue to do so here. We just have to be responsible about it. Thank you. And, you know, to conclude, uh, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry is a career development fellowship for early to mid career professionals. Katie, how can our listeners, um, so that sort of early career, engage in this intersection of trust and democracy? Are there any majors um, are there any volunteer organizations that they can do? Um, what advice do you have for those interested in pursuing a career in combating this information? Yeah, so there's, I'd recommend checking out the resources. There's the Trust and Safety Professionals Association. Mm -hmm. There's the Integrity Institute, as I mentioned. Um, a lot of universities are starting to build up programs sort of in this space. So Stanford, Georgetown, Harvard, uh, I've done stuff at my old alma mater, UW-Madison, um, but there are a lot of those that are starting to have, you know, tech, tech ethics and public mm -hmm. policy, tech and public policy types of things that you can, that you can look at. Um, and then I would also just say too, of like, be looking for the internships and the jobs and stuff that you can be going into with this. Um, I will say most people that are in this trust and safety profession now, almost all of us kind of fell into it. Mm. We didn't go to college being like, we're going to be trust and safety. The, the vernacular didn't exist in, right. and I graduated college in 2003, which yes, 20 years ago, but like <laughs> not that long ago. Yeah. Right. Um, and so um, I think a lot of this too is being thinking about the types of experiences you want to get the industries you want to be in. Um, and then how do you, how do you over time as you build your career, get those positions and roles and jobs to kind of give you those experiences. Absolutely. And on that note, we conclude this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. Thank you so much to Katie from Anchor Change for joining us. And be sure to check out all the great work that Anchor Change is doing by following them on social media and subscribing to Katie's newsletter. Additionally, please don't forget to vote in your local election, um, either if you live in the U.S. this year or next year. Um, all the discussed links, including a website to find your polling location, are included in the show notes. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.